controversies about created nature and God's grace can be found across the whole range of theology, including in what it has to say about the first human beings. And in some way, what we say about the first human beings can cast its light or shadow across the whole of our theology. This afternoon, I'm going to review an early modern controversy about grace perfecting the nature of the very first human beings and suggest that this has something to say to us today. Today, of course, the whole broader issue of human origins and the reality of the fall is controversial. And yet the Catholic Church firmly confesses that the first human beings fell from a state known as original justice. This teaching, which can be found in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, is in continuity with Catholic doctrine across the centuries. The Council of Trent, for example, in its decree on original sin of 1546, defined that humanity had been originally constituted by God in holiness and justice. Though the council deliberately avoided the technicalities of scholastic terminology, Catholic theologians would continue to explain that holiness in terms of the presence in the first human beings of a stable habitual gift of sanctifying grace. In essence, the same supernatural gift which is present in anyone who is rightly said to be in a state of grace. Through the fall, this grace was lost for all humanity and our nature damaged. But grace was then restored to nature to heal us by Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. In medieval times, theologians had taken different views on exactly when this sanctifying grace was first bestowed. According to some theologians, such as the Franciscan Saint Bonaventure and later his confrere, Blessed Scotus, Adam was first created in a state of integral nature after which he was elevated by the supernatural gift to a state of grace, from which he then fell. Others, such as St. Thomas Aquinas, came to think that the gift of grace was present from the very first moment of humanity's existence, that nature and grace were gifted together such that Adam was not merely constituted at some later point, but was created in a state of supernatural grace from the very beginning. However, while this controversy about the timing of Adam's grace continued beyond the Middle Ages, today I'm going to focus on a later early modern controversy which was over whether this initial grace, the grace of Adam, 
was also the grace of the second Adam, whether it was the grace of Jesus Christ. In other words, was Christ somehow gifted to the first human beings together with grace, and even together with grace and nature at the very beginning? Theologians are agreed that the grace we Christians receive today is the grace of Christ, derived from our Redeemer. St. John says in the first chapter of his gospel that from Christ's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Catholic theologians have normally agreed that this flowing of grace from Christ extends somehow to the redemptive grace Adam and Eve received after the fall, along with that of all holy and just persons who preceded the coming of Christ. However, there is no such agreement about the status of their grace before the fall. Was that prelapsarian grace also the grace of Jesus Christ or grace of some other provenance? There has been disagreement about this, just as there has been disagreement over whether the grace enjoyed by the angels from the beginning is the grace of Christ or grace of some other provenance. As with the question regarding the angels, the question about Adam and Eve touches on the universality of Christ's grace. Do we have in the case of the first human beings an exception, a grace gifted to human nature that somehow remains outside the direct sphere of influence of Christ's humanity? Or was Christ somehow gifted to the first human beings together with nature and grace? I am going to suggest today that St. Thomas gives us reason to think that the initial grace of Adam and Eve was no exception, but was in fact the grace of Jesus Christ. So it was not merely that grace was gifted together with nature for the first human beings on St. Thomas's view, but that Christ was gifted together with nature and grace from the very beginning. In other words, on St. Thomas's view, Adam's grace was Christ's grace. I am not going to suggest that every Thomist must adhere slavishly to all the details of St. Thomas's historic thought once it was and once it's been established what they were, but rather that a disciple of St. Thomas needs to take his opinion with the utmost seriousness, departing from it where there is reason to do so. However, that Adam's prelapsarian grace was Christ's grace is not in fact a position that is usually associated with Thomism. Indeed, it has standardly been quite the opposite. An important representative of this standard Thomist answer 
to the question of Adam's grace is the 16th century Spanish Dominican, Domingo de Soto. De Soto was appointed a theologian at Trent by Emperor Charles V, and he presented the council with an account of the Thomist school's general approach to the theology of grace as part of its discussions on justification. His work on nature and grace was published in 1547. Since Trent was principally concerned with responding to the Protestant Reformation, one of the crucial questions for the council was merit. Merit was then also dominant, perhaps too dominant, as I shall suggest, in the scholastic handling of the question of Adam's grace. Though de Soto asks our question only in passing, the main concern of his answer was whether Christ merited the grace Adam and Eve had before the fall. There was no question that Christ merited the redemptive grace they had after the fall, because Christ merited all redemptive grace. But did our Redeemer merit the grace they had before they fell into sin? No, says de Soto, Christ did not merit that grace. De Soto makes the first human being's prelapsarian grace an exception to the general rule. But why did he do that? De Soto based his view on a very important theological teaching of the Thomist school. According to Thomists, the motive or purpose of Christ's incarnation was redemptive to heal us, to save us from sin. As 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. St. Augustine had concluded that since Christ's purpose in becoming incarnate was our redemption from sin, if the human race had never sinned, there would have been no incarnation. So on this Augustinian view, no fall, no incarnation. There is, of course, another view on this question, which is chiefly associated with Scotus. On this other view, Christ would have come whether or not there was sin. This position was argued from the fact that, as St. Thomas also acknowledged, Christ's predestination is primary with respect to all other predestination. Back in St. Thomas's time, the issue of the so-called motive of the incarnation was becoming a standard matter for dispute. St. Thomas's own Dominican teacher, St. Albert the Great, held that on balance, piety should maintain that Christ would have come even if humanity had not sinned. St. Thomas, however, like Bonaventure, stuck more closely to Augustine. For St. Thomas, the motive or purpose of the incarnation was divine mercy. 
the incarnation took place out of mercy to free us from sin. And we know that from what God has revealed to us in Scripture about the saving purpose of Christ's coming. St. Thomas concluded that since God has not revealed his will to us on what would have happened if there had been no sin, we cannot be certain about it. In view, however, of what Scripture does say regarding the redemptive purpose of the actual incarnation, we should on balance prefer to say that had there been no sin, there would have been no incarnation. This was St. Thomas's perspective on the question, and I think it is fair to say that it has been strongly adhered to by his theological disciples right up to today, just as Scotus's position is promoted today by others. And I think Thomists would not abandon their position very easily. De Soto then, as a Thomist, also accepted St. Thomas's account of the merciful motive of Christ's incarnation. He said that Christ came only to save what was lost, and so merited grace for us precisely to redeem us from sin. He emphasizes that before the fall, there was no sin, implying that humanity prior to the fall was not yet something that was lost. This means that prior to the fall, human beings did not need Christ's redemptive grace. They may have needed grace of divine provenance to elevate them above the limitations of their nature, but they did not need Christ's redemptive grace to heal their nature. So De Soto holds that Christ did not merit grace for the first human beings in their condition prior to the fall. We should take a moment to consider what it would have meant for De Soto if Christ had merited the grace enjoyed before the fall. For De Soto, that would have meant that there would have been an influx of grace somehow flowing into the first human beings from the Christ who was to come, just as there was in Adam and Eve after the fall. But on De Soto's position, there could be no such dependence on Christ's grace before the fall, since Christ did not merit prelapsarian grace, so that grace could not be derived from Christ. Adam's grace was not then Christ's grace, at least before the fall. Here we are beginning to touch on another important question for theologians, that of Christ's headship. Christ is our head now, and we are his members, and our grace flows from him to us. But was he the head of Adam before the fall? An example of a 16th century Thomist who examined this question is the relatively unknown Dominican from Asturias in Spain, Juan Vicente, 
Vicente gave a sort of yes and no answer to this question, while acknowledging that the answer might actually be in the end no. Christ might not have been the head of prelapsarian Adam at all. However, he did his best to find a way to say that Christ was. Vicente published his Relexio on the habitual sanctifying grace of Christ our Saviour in 1591. A Relexio was an academic genre developed in the Thomist school at Salamanca where authoritative texts were reread in the light of more contemporary theological issues. Taking his starting point from the prologue of John's Gospel and St. Thomas's Summa Theologiae, Vicente examined a series of then contemporary issues about Christ's habitual grace, such as his merit. Again, merit was a dominating concern. One issue for Vicente was the connection between Christ's grace and his headship. As a Thomist, Vicente was committed to redemption from sin as the purpose of the incarnation, and he held that Christ was predestined precisely as our Redeemer. So the grace that Christ merited is in fact always a redemptive healing grace. Grace before the fall, however, was not a healing grace because humanity did not at that time need healing. And so prelapsarian grace was not merited by Christ. Vicente then concludes that, formally speaking, Christ was not the head of unfallen humanity and that Christ could only be thought of as humanity's head prior to the fall in a more limited sense, insofar as grace was to be restored by Christ, our Redeemer. However, considering humanity's pre-fall state per se, it was not redemptive, was not merited by Christ, and so was not the grace of Christ and Christ was not the head of prelapsarian humanity. In examining the case of human beings before the fall, Vicente, like de Soto before him, made merit the pivotal issue. Over the centuries, Thomists would take different positions on whether or not Christ was the head of Adam before the fall. Few who are, however, who held that Christ was Adam's head, would associate that conclusion with the idea that Adam's sanctifying grace was Christ's grace. Instead, they would look for other reasons why Christ was the head of Adam. One idea would be that, as St. Thomas acknowledged, Adam already had faith in the Christ who was to come even if he did not know that Christ was to be his redeemer. However, the idea that Adam's sanctifying grace was Christ's grace was not a position they could argue from. A different answer to the question about Adam's prelapsarian grace was given by the distinguished Jesuit theologian Francisco Suarez. After Suarez moved from the Roman college, 
the predecessor of today's Gregorian University, to Alcala in Spain, he published the first version of his De Incarnazione in 1590, a year before Vicente's book. Suarez commented here on the first 26 questions of the third part of the Summa Theologiae. This commentary included 56 disputations on debated topic. In Disputation 23, which is attached to Suarez's commentary on St. Thomas's question about Christ's grace as head of the church, Suarez set out to explore exactly how far Christ's headship extended. One issue was, of course, whether Christ was the head of Adam before the fall. Suarez records that many Thomists denied this. He responds that St. Thomas himself says that Christ was the head of all human beings at all times. Suarez just will not admit an exception to this rule. He backs this up with the fact that Adam had faith in Christ even before the fall, as St. Thomas taught. This is hardly a full picture, however, of how grace perfected original human nature. Suarez had already noted that he was being especially brief in this section because he thinks he cannot adequately cover the issues until he turns to merit. As with De Soto and Vicente, the theology of the state of prelapsarian Adam turns on the issue of Christ's merit. When he comes to comment on St. Thomas's question whether Christ merited for others, Suarez appends his Disputation 41 on what exactly Christ merited for human beings. Among these things, he says, is each person's initial sanctifying grace. Having affirmed that Christ merited such grace for the just who preceded his incarnation, Suarez asks whether the same can be said of Adam before the fall. He notes that de Soto had simply denied that Christ merited grace for prelapsarian Adam. Suarez, however, thinks the contrary opinion more likely. He argues from the fact that St. Thomas acknowledges that Adam already had faith in the Christ who was to come. From that, Suarez goes on to deduce that Adam already had hope, hope in Christ's merits. If Adam already believed in Christ, he probably already hoped in what Christ could merit for him, even if he did not know that that included redemption. Suarez can then conclude, contrary to De Soto, that it is probable that Christ merited the sanctifying grace Adam enjoyed even before the fall. Suarez adds that this opinion fits well with his position on the primacy of Christ's predestination and his dignity. Here we can mention Suarez's earlier discussion of the motive of the incarnation. 
Although he was a commentator on St. Thomas, Suarez also made use of Scotus, and that is what he did in his discussion of the incarnation's purpose or purposes. There, Suarez combined the opinions of Thomas and Scotus, allowing God more than one motive for the incarnation. God certainly wills the incarnation out of mercy for our salvation, as St. Thomas says, because God foresees that Adam will fall. However, that is secondary to the fact that God primarily wills the incarnation because of its intrinsic excellence. So Suarez incorporates the Scotist proposal that God wills the incarnation even before sin is taken into account. And you can see then how this broader account of Christ's primacy fits well with Christ meriting the grace of unfallen Adam as well as the grace of fallen Adam. Because the incarnation is primarily willed independently of sin, Christ merits grace for those situations where there is no sin as well as for situations where there is sin. Christ merits all grace. As with the opinions of De Soto and Vicente, it is easy to see how Suarez's position on the purpose of the incarnation is easily combined with his position on prelapsarian grace. If the purpose of the incarnation was redemptive, as the Thomists De Soto and Vicente held, Adam's grace was not Christ's grace. However, if God willed the incarnation independently of sin, as Suarez argued, then Adam's grace was Christ's grace. However, I am going to suggest that there need be no necessary combination made between a particular position on prelapsarian grace and a particular position on the motive of the incarnation in these two ways as we shall see. Nevertheless, it was these two overall combined positions that dominated the debate. On the one hand, Thomists have rallied to De Soto's view, including Reginald Garrigou-Lagrange, who taught here at the Angelicum in the last century and down to the present day. And on the other hand, Scotists, as well as Suarezians, rallied to the position of Suarez. Now, Suarez had acknowledged that some would object that Christ's merit was totally directed to our redemption. And so Christ could not have merited Adam's grace in his pre-fall innocence. But Suarez was proposing an alternative view that while Christ's meritorious activity was indeed directed to our redemption overall, this activity could merit both redemptive effects in sinners and also non-redemptive effects in others, such as in prelapsarian Adam. To his critics, 
This seemed like an, a distinction Suarez had concocted to suit his own position. It seems to me, however, that it is possible to find further support for this distinction once we put the whole dispute into a broader theological context. One thing that seems to me to limit this whole debate is the way it was conducted almost solely under the title of merit. Merit is, of course, crucial to Catholic theology, but it does not provide the whole picture of Christ's causation of grace in his members. Something more promising, however, was found in the commentary on the third part of the Summa, published in 1616 by the Spanish Cistercian theologian, Pedro de Lorca. While de Lorca lent to the Scotus teaching on the motive of the incarnation, he disagreed with Suarez on merit, conceding the Thomist view that Christ did not merit prelapsarian grace. But while he denied that Christ was the meritorious cause of Adam and Eve's grace, he did claim that Christ was its final cause and exemplar cause. And it seems to me that the Lorca was on the right track. This means that as final cause, Christ was the end or goal of prelapsarian grace. And by way of exemplar cause, Christ's grace was the plan or blueprint on which prelapsarian grace was modeled. In other words, Christ himself was in these ways somehow gifted to Adam and Eve at the very beginning together with nature and grace. De Lorca sees Adam and Eve as members of the same one church to which we belong. And in De Lorca's application of different kinds of causality to our question, I suggest that we have a way of supporting Suarez's distinction between redemptive and non-redemptive effects of Christ's grace. Through final and exemplar causation of prelapsarian grace, we have a non-redemptive effect caused by Christ. And by adding meritorious causality into the picture, we have redemptive effects after the fall. Not that de Lorca's approach was acceptable to Thomists in general. While his proposal about exemplar causality had little impact on the debate and was largely ignored, that of final causality was explicitly rejected. According to the Salmanticenses, the Carmelite Thomists of Salamanca, Christ is certainly the final cause of our grace, but grace before the fall was aimed at a different end. And so pre-fall humanity was an exception to the rule. However, it seems to me that something in St. Thomas's thinking was missed 
in the way those involved in the controversy addressed the whole question of Adam's grace. Once we take this into account, I suggest that it becomes more difficult to make prelapsarian humanity into an exception. What I mean is the understanding of Christ's grace in terms of what is sometimes known as the principle of the maximum. St. Thomas drew this principle from Aristotle's metaphysics, and he applies it in various contexts from physics to God. In brief, St. Thomas holds that where there are several realities to which some feature can be rightly attributed to varying degrees, the first in this set possesses that feature maximally or preeminently, and so is somehow the cause of all that follows in the set, without exception. So, for example, the first truth is the cause of all other truths, and without exception. The first good is the cause of all other goods, without exception. And God, who is his own being, is the cause of all else that has being, without exception. Where the principle of the maximum applies, it admits of no exceptions. There is no truth that is not caused by the first truth, no good that is not caused by the first good, and no being that is not caused by the God who is his own being. St. Thomas explicitly applied the same principle in Christology, teaching, for example, that Christ's resurrection is the cause of our future resurrections, without exception. Though he does not mention it explicitly in his account of Christ's grace, the same principle is nevertheless at work. This is evident from the way St. Thomas speaks about Christ's grace as a universal principle in the set of those who have grace. Indeed, if St. Thomas had thought the principle did not apply to grace, it would no longer have held so universally for him, and he would not have been able to rely on it across the range of contexts that he does. I conclude from this that St. Thomas held that Christ's grace, as the first in the set of graces, is the cause of all other graces without exception. However, I do not take this to mean that Christ's grace must be the meritorious cause of all other grace. Just as we saw with De Lorca, so St. Thomas also held that there were different kinds of cause. And in the case of grace, I take him to hold that Christ's grace was at least the exemplar cause of all other grace. Every other grace, then, is somehow modelled on Christ's preeminent grace as its blueprint or exemplar, without exception. In this way, at least, all Adam's grace, before as well as after the fall, was dependent on Christ's. However, 
Christ's grace was not the cause of prelapsarian grace in every way. And grace before the fall was not dependent on Christ's in every possible way. We too can hold that Christ's grace was not the meritorious cause of prelapsarian grace, because as the Thomist tradition insists, Christ our Redeemer merited grace not for the innocent, but for sinners. But while, like de Lorca, I would back off from affirming with Suarez that Christ was the meritorious cause of Adam's grace, I too would not go on to deny that Adam's grace was not Christ's grace at all. It was rather the grace of Christ by, for example, Christ's exemplar causality. But if Thomists were to agree with me and accept that Adam's grace was Christ's grace, would that commit them to the Scotist view that Christ would have come independent of whether or not there was sin? Recall that in the early modern debate, those who held that Adam's grace was Christ's grace, including de Lorca, also held that Christ would have come whether or not there was sin. It seems to me, however, that my account of Adam's grace is compatible with either position on the motive of the incarnation, Thomist or Scotist. This means that there would be no need for Thomists who accepted my account of Adam's grace to give up their position on the merciful motive of the incarnation. I say this because asking questions about what would have ensued in the world if something had been different must always involve our minds removing or abstracting one or more real elements from our picture of the world. In the case of asking what would have happened if Adam had not sinned, the most obvious thing we must remove from this picture is the fall. However, it must surely involve removing from the picture the redemptive incarnation, which deals with that sin as it actually happened. Only then can we fairly ask whether there would have been a non-redemptive incarnation and weigh up the reasons on either side of the argument. However, this means that we also need to abstract from the picture the fact that Adam's grace was Christ's grace. We need to do this because the actual identity of Adam's grace as Christ's grace depends on the exemplar reality of Christ's actual incarnation. So if we remove the actual incarnation from the picture, we also need to remove its effect that Adam's grace was Christ's grace and ask our question from a position of neutrality on the source of Adam's grace. But this neutrality means that the view I have presented today of Adam's grace being Christ's grace does not compel one to say that the incarnation would have happened independent of sin. Affirming my position leaves the debate on the motive of the incarnation 
more or less where it stood before. Theologians of different traditions can converge on agreeing that Adam's grace was in fact Christ's grace, while leaving their other theological disagreements intact. However, someone might think that my position on Adam's grace is not a fruitful one for theology if it just leaves everything else unchanged. After all, a fruitful theological speculation is surely one that casts light on other areas in theology. But I want to conclude by suggesting that the fact that Adam's grace was Christ's grace should lead Thomists to reaffirm the centrality and universality of Christ's grace more strongly than they had previously done. Even if Adam's grace was not merited by him, and that this has implications for how we think about the theology of nature and grace today. It seems to me that if we allow that Adam's grace was not the grace of Christ, but was grace of some other provenance, as many Thomists have done, then we leave the door open to thinking that there may be other exceptional graces in this world that are not somehow derived from Christ's grace. I do not want to trespass on the next speaker's topic, but it has been a question raised in more recent theology, whether the grace the church teaches can be at work in people of non-Christian religions and in people of no religion at all. Is grace mediated by the humanity of Christ or grace of some other provenance. But if Thomists can now agree that the very first grace to humanity prior to the fall was in fact the grace of Christ, then this convergence can frame more recent questions in the theology of nature and grace and underscore in a more complete way the universality of the grace of Christ.